Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from October 2014, Dr. Eric Weiner covers the latest treatments for metastatic breast cancer, as well as information on emerging clinical trials. Dr. Weiner is the Senior Vice President for Clinical Strategy at Dana-Farber, as well as the Chief of Women's Cancers and Director of the Breast Oncology Program in the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. Ann Dorr from Dana-Farber's Communications Department joins him for the conversation. Okay, Dr. Weiner, we're going to start off here and with the first question is, what is metastatic breast cancer? Metastatic breast cancer refers to breast cancer that has spread outside of the breast and outside of the lymph nodes immediately surrounding the breast. So those lymph nodes are the lymph nodes underneath the arm and the lymph nodes right above the clavicle. But once breast cancer spreads beyond those areas, um, then it's typically called metastatic breast cancer. Are stage four breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer the same thing? Essentially the same thing. And you know, many of us often call this advanced breast cancer. Technically, advanced breast cancer could also include locally advanced breast cancer where there is a very large tumor in the breast and an extensive amount of lymph node involvement. But these terms are all fairly synonymous. And what percentage of women develop metastatic breast cancer? Well, that, that depends on a lot of factors. Um, a woman, um, when she's initially diagnosed with, with breast cancer, um, depending on the stage of the disease, depending on the subtype of the disease, depending on certain other characteristics of, of the tumor, will have a different likelihood of ultimately developing metastatic breast cancer. There are a small proportion of women who from the very beginning have metastatic breast cancer, and when they're first diagnosed have cancer in the breast and at that time have also had the cancer spread elsewhere. Now typically that's when the cancer in the breast is relatively large or there's a fair amount of lymph node involvement, although rarely there can be a more limited amount of cancer in the breast and the cancer could have spread elsewhere, but that's a, a less common situation. Overall though, um, it's probably fair to estimate that somewhere in the range of a quarter to a third of women um, who are diagnosed with breast cancer may ultimately develop metastatic breast cancer, um, probably closer to a quarter than a, than a third. Um, but again, that depends on many, many different factors. Are there different types of metastatic breast cancer, and, how are, and if they are, how are these types different? Well, as, as you know, and I think as, as probably most of the people in the audience know, we no longer treat breast cancer as one size fits all. Um, breast cancer is a family of diseases. That's true when it's in the breast. It's true when it's outside of the breast. And there are really three main subtypes of metastatic breast cancer. There's HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, where our emphasis is often on drugs that affect HER2, drugs like trastuzumab, which is commonly called Herceptin, or, and pertuzumab, commonly called Progetta, and TDM1. Um, and then there is what's called triple negative breast cancer. This is one of the hardest to treat types of metastatic breast cancer. And it's hard to treat partially because 
we only have as a standard treatment chemotherapy. We don't have any other special or targeted therapies. And then finally, we have what is, what is thought of as hormone receptor positive breast cancer, breast cancer that is sensitive to the influences of, of hormones. Um, some of those cancers are also HER2 positive, although when they're HER2 positive, we tend to classify them with the HER2 positive cancers. So when I talk about estrogen receptor positive metastatic breast cancer, I'm thinking of it as estrogen receptor positive and HER2 negative. And in that setting, we have hormonal therapy. Um, we have some limited targeted therapy in addition to hormonal therapy. And then we also have chemotherapy. Does someone have less of a chance of developing metastatic breast cancer if he or she was diagnosed very early stage breast cancer? Absolutely. So women who are initially diagnosed with very small tumors um, and without lymph node involvement have a much lower chance of developing metastatic breast cancer. And that's why our treatment approaches in women who have very early stage breast cancer differ from for example, treatment approaches in women with stage two or three breast cancer where the chance of a recurrence is higher and we often take steps to try to help prevent a woman from developing recurrent breast cancer. What are the risks for developing metastatic breast cancer? Is there any way to mitigate these risks? Well, the, the risks, as, as best we know, largely relate to the tumor um, in the sense that um, a cancer that is larger and involves lymph nodes and involves more lymph nodes is more likely ultimately to, to recur or to metastasize. Um, and then to some degree, um, certain features of the cancer also predict a higher likelihood. So triple negative cancers are somewhat more likely to metastasize at least in the first five years than estrogen receptor positive breast cancers. HER2 positive breast cancers used to be at quite high risk of, of spreading or metastasizing, although that has all changed with the use of drugs like Herceptin in the treatment of, that is used to treat women who have earlier stage breast cancer. Um, I, I, I might add one more point, which is um, women often ask what kind of lifestyle choices can they make that may decrease the risk of developing metastatic breast cancer. And here we don't have any absolutely definite answers. There are some associations with obesity and the development of metastatic breast cancer. So women who are overweight at the time of diagnosis may be somewhat more likely to develop metastatic breast cancer. There's some suggestion that women who exercise may be less likely to develop metastatic breast cancer. But these are all associations, they're, they're not so clear cut. Um, and while studies are, are going to start looking at whether, for example, a diet and exercise intervention might help decrease a woman's chance of developing metastatic breast cancer, that's not something we know for sure at the moment. Right, like lung cancer and smoking. It, it, we're nowhere close to where we are with, with, with lung cancer and smoking. And in fact, in terms of lung cancer and smoking, we even know that if you have lung cancer and you continue to smoke, you're at higher risk of, of having further problems. So stopping smoking even after you develop lung cancer is very helpful. 
Could you address what types of scans or lab tests are available to breast cancer patients for early detection of metastatic breast cancer? Well, this is always a topic that comes up in the clinic. Um, and many times my patients are, are surprised by the, the, the answer that they get. And there have now been um, studies, a number of studies, that have looked at the value of early detection of metastatic breast cancer. And as best we know, there is not a tremendous value. Now, that doesn't mean that if a woman comes in with symptoms, we don't evaluate them and we tell her to go home and only when she's horribly ill do we get scans or evaluate those symptoms. Um, on the other hand, finding metastatic breast cancer two or three or four or five months earlier as a result of getting scans doesn't, as best we know, give a woman a longer life or a better life. Um, those scans, and for that matter, blood tests that, that are occasionally used in this setting, um, clearly increase anxiety, which isn't great. Um, they, they can be expensive, and there are false positives, um, such that we can have someone develop something on a scan, everyone's worried that it's cancer, and it turns out not to be cancer. Now, I wouldn't mind putting my patients through that added anxiety and even deal with some of those false positives if it were going to mean that someone were going to live longer or live better. But given the absence of any evidence that we're going to make people live longer or better by getting scans looking for the early detection of metastatic breast cancer, um, there's really no good reason to do it. And all of our professional organizations have recommended against follow-up that includes scans and blood tests like tumor markers. Um, that said, if a woman has symptoms, if a woman um, has, for some reason, um, a, a, a lump or some such thing in a lymph node or elsewhere that is suspicious, it, sh it should be evaluated. Can you discuss the latest research into treatment options for metastatic breast cancer? What are researchers focusing on? Well, what we're focusing on is trying to come up with better treatments. And those better treatments are highly dependent upon the subtype of the cancer. So in the setting of HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, where we already have a number of treatments, we're looking for even, even better treatments. We're looking to try to understand how cancers become resistant to drugs like Perceptin and Progetta. Um, and I think that there are several very promising hints. In the setting of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, the real focus has been on trying to combine targeted therapies, therapies like the so-called PI3 kinase inhibitors or the CDK4-6 inhibitors in conjunction with hormonal therapy to essentially um, give, the more, give the hormonal therapy more staying power. And finally, in the setting of triple negative breast cancer, there are some targeted therapies being looked at. Um, there's interest in looking at some chemotherapy drugs that weren't used for quite some time but may have particular activity in triple negative breast cancer, drugs like the platinums. 
Um, but in triple negative breast cancer, I think that the, the key issue is that we need a better understanding of the underlying biology so that we're not just shooting in the dark and increasingly we're trying to focus on treatments um, for which there's a strong biologic rationale coming out of laboratory work that's done. Laboratory that work that's done in, um, in cells, in petri dishes, and laboratory work that's done in um, mice and, uh, and other animals. Um, and, and finally, um, laboratory work that is looking at comprehensive genomic analyses of, of these tumors. In ER positive and HER2 negative tumors have, if ER positive and HER2 negative tumors have zero response to tamoxifen, what are other treatment options? Uh, you're saying ER positive? Yes. And, and HER2 negative. So, it, so, so we're talking about a woman who has a hormonally sensitive tumor, at least by the w ways we, we, we measure this, because it's estrogen receptor positive, it's HER2 negative. If tamoxifen has either stopped working or isn't working, that's a situation where most of us would try an aromatase inhibitor. Um, now, many of these drugs are often given in the adjuvant setting to prevent a recurrence. So when a woman develops metastatic breast cancer, she may have already been exposed to these drugs. Or even um, more importantly, sh she may have developed metastatic breast cancer while taking these drugs. And if that's the case, they often can't be used again. But there are a number of different hormonal therapy options we can consider. Um, and as a general rule, we want to try to use hormonal therapy as much as possible in hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer because it is tolerated better than chemotherapy. When is the right time for a metastatic breast cancer patient to look for a clinical trial? So I think there's a perception that clinical trials are what you do when everything else doesn't work. And I don't think that's the right perception. Um, I think clinical trials are something that you want to consider every step along the way. Now, that doesn't mean that the right treatment for any given patient is always on a clinical trial. There may not be an appropriate trial available. There may be reasons why a patient is particularly concerned about a trial. And of course, by their very nature, trials aren't standard care. Um, they typically involve the administration of some treatment, usually a drug, um, that is generally, there are some exceptions in terms of trials, but generally not FDA approved yet. And so there's the potential for, for side effects that we might not have otherwise known about, or for that matter, side effects that we do know about, but by adding on the extra drug, there are extra side effects. But I, I'd argue that each time a woman makes a treatment decision in, in the setting of metastatic breast cancer, and, and women often go on multiple different treatments over time as the cancer gets better and then gets a little worse and then gets better and then gets a little worse, each step of the way, I think, ideally, that woman and her doctor should be saying, is the best treatment for her a standard treatment or is there an option of a clinical trial? And if so, is that a trial that's, that's, that's that makes sense for her. Some clinical trials are what are called um, phase two trials, where essentially everyone is getting the, the same therapy. There are randomized phase two trials, which tend to be 
relatively small randomized trials where one group of women is getting a new therapy or a new therapy in combination with a standard therapy and another group may be getting the standard or maybe getting something quite different. And then finally, um, there are phase three trials in which we're typically comparing the standard available therapy with some new approach. Oftentimes that new approach is that same standard therapy with another drug. And there are virtually no trials that involve the administration of placebos alone. Sometimes we do have placebos in trials, but it's typically in a trial where half the women are getting standard therapy, half the women are getting standard therapy plus something else. And for the women getting the standard therapy, sometimes it's standard therapy plus a placebo versus standard therapy plus the drug. And from a scientific standpoint, that is a purer study um, and one that may be a little bit easier in to interpret. But I don't think that women need to worry that they're going to be getting placebos. And nothing, basically. Right. right. There, and and I, I say this both, both to patients all the time, and I say it to, um, to people learning how to do clinical trials. There's no such thing as a good clinical trial that doesn't at the same time also represent good clinical care. You have to start off with the principle that you're providing the best clinical care to someone. And then if you are asking them to volunteer to be in a clinical trial and they're willing to participate, they're willing to participate both because they want to help and because they're hoping to get something that, that might be better for them, it has to be based on fundamentally outstanding clinical care. And then this might go along with that. If you are declined from a trial in one hospital, would you qualify elsewhere? Should you go elsewhere? Well. It depends on what declined means. So every once in a while there'll be a trial with a limited number of slots and maybe one hospital won't have the slots and another hospital will. As a general rule, however, if you're not eligible, which is how I think of it, for a clinical trial, it doesn't matter whether you're in Little Rock, Arkansas or Los Angeles. If it's the same trial, you're not eligible in either of those cities. You don't become magically eligible by moving 1,800 miles west or how, whatever the distance is. That said, you might be eligible for a, an entirely different clinical trial. I think one thing to keep in mind is that the one group of patients who pretty consistently are not eligible for, for trials are women who are simply too sick to have the potential to benefit. So if, in fact, a woman is so sick that she's unable to spend much time out of bed or she's um, having very, very severe symptoms and her major organs aren't functioning properly, um, unfortunately, that's somebody for whom a clinical trial is probably not going to be beneficial and, and she probably won't be eligible. Let me see next one. Can ER positive... PR positive or H or HER2 negative breast cancers transform into triple negative breast cancer? Well, I think that that um, really is a, a bigger question than that, and I'm going to tackle the bigger question, which is, um, do these receptors change? And the answer is sometimes. Um, so for the most part, 
if a tumor is ER positive when a woman is diagnosed with stage one or stage two or stage three breast cancer, and then some number of years later she develops metastatic breast cancer, chances are it's going to be ER positive again, but not 100% of the time, and probably up to 10% of the time there can be a change. The same is true in terms of HER2. If a woman has HER2 positive breast cancer, when it recurs or spreads, when I say recur, I really mean metastasize, um, it is typically HER2 positive. But again, there, there, there can be changes. Those changes are most likely to go from positive to negative, although negative to positive can also occur, either because there was some testing error initially, or because sometimes these cancers are complex and there are different populations of cells in the cancers and we may just not have hit the right population early on. But given this, the fact that there are occasionally changes, and given the fact that treatment is affected by the, the receptor status of the tumor, most of us feel pretty strongly that a woman who has a new diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer needs a new biopsy. Now, I, and just to follow up on one last thing, the, the, the question is, can these cancers become triple negative? And so if an estrogen receptor positive cancer, a cancer that was clearly estrogen and progesterone receptor positive, is now after several treatments of hormonal therapy. Let's imagine that we do another biopsy and it's now estrogen receptor negative and it was HER2 negative right along. So it's a triple negative cancer now. Is that the same as a triple negative cancer that was diagnosed initially as a triple negative cancer? And that's a question we don't know the answer to. And we don't know if those cancers will, will necessarily respond in the same way to the same drugs as a de novo or new triple negative cancer. Hmm. How are off-label drug, drugs approved for use in the setting of metastatic breast cancer? Um, well, life used to be more flexible. Um, it's, I think, less flexible these days. And we didn't used to worry very much about using drugs off-label. Most of the drugs were, relatively speaking, inexpensive. Insurers didn't seem to care a great deal. Now, uh, many of our newest therapies are extraordinarily expensive therapies. They're approved with fairly narrow indications. And I think many of them um, are simply not approved by insurers. I know many of them are not approved by insurers to use off-label. Beyond that, I think you have to question why is there a desire to use it off-label? There may be some situations in which there's a rationale. There are many situations where it probably doesn't make sense. One situation which I think many of us were concerned about is with the drug pertuzumab. That's a drug that's, uh, that's approved in the first-line setting for women with HER2-positive breast cancer. So what about the woman who was initially diagnosed six years ago, has been living with HER2-positive breast cancer for many years, her first-line treatment was four years ago before pertuzumab was approved. Is it reasonable for her to get pertuzumab for her HER2-positive breast cancer now in the fourth line? I personally think that it's reasonable. I think that's a situation where insurers tend to be pretty flexible, although technically they could say no. But I think that's very different, for example, than deciding that you're going to use 
one of these new drugs for melanoma, one of these BRAF inhibitors for a patient with breast cancer, where I think that most of us and most insurers would say, why do you want to do that? There just isn't evidence. We shouldn't be making things up when, when, when we have evidence to go by and when we have treatments available that have been shown to be useful. What treatment would you recommend to a patient who has cancer in the bone marrow, not just the bone? Uh, the fact that it's in the bone marrow wouldn't necessarily change my treatment recommendation with one exception, um, which is that cancer in the bone marrow can sometimes compromise a woman's blood counts. So a woman could have a low platelet count or be quite anemic as a result of it. And if there were a way of giving um, a treatment that didn't further suppress the bone marrow. Um, so there are some chemotherapy drugs, for example, that have a lot of bone marrow toxicity and some that don't. And all things being equal, I'd prefer to use a drug there that had less of a, of a negative effect on the bone marrow. On the other hand, you also want to use a drug that's going to work because the best way to get that woman's blood counts up is to clear out some of the cancer in the bone marrow. This from a patient who says, I am a metastatic patient who currently only has cancer in the bones. What happens after a metastatic in the bones? What happens after hormonal therapy st stops working? Um, well, when hormonal therapy stops working, um, we have to look at what other options exist. Um, at the moment, for a woman with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, the only targeted option that's commercially available is the drug Everolimus or Affinitor, which is typically given with an aromatase inhibitor, um, typically given with a, with, um, a so-called non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor or the drug Eximestane, also called Aromacin. Um, we hope in the future that PI3 kinase inhibitors may be an option with hormonal therapy. We hope that the CDK4-6 inhibitors may be an option. But if, in fact, hormonal therapy has really stopped working for this woman, then it's probably time to start thinking about chemotherapy. Now, if she has limited cancer and she has no symptoms, you have to be very careful before jumping into chemotherapy with a lot of side effects. You, talk, you touched this very slightly, what is PI3K? Um, so um, PI3 kinase um, refers to a pathway in a cancer cell that affects the growth and, um, and the malignant potential or the ability of that cell to spread and flourish. Um, it's confusing because there are many different ways in which this pathway, which you can think of as a bit like an electrical circuit, can be activated. It can be activated by a number of different genes and proteins. It can also be activated by having a mutation in what's called the PIK3CA gene. But the bottom line is that probably somewhere in the range of about a third of all breast cancers, um, a little bit more in some settings, a little bit less in other settings, have some sort of pathway abnormality. And there's the suggestion that in those patients, 
um, at least with HER2 positive breast cancer, that there may, may be more resistance to standard therapies. And there's the hope that the inhibitors of the PI3 kinase pathway may help reverse that. But you know, these drugs are now just beginning to go into um, selected phase three trials. So it's still gonna be a, a couple of years, I'm afraid, before we really have clear answers. But I think that there's a, a pretty good chance that one or another of these drugs, and there are about 10 of them um, that are in development, but one or another will, will, will actually make it through the drug development process. One person writes in, can you discuss any research that is looking into what causes cancer cells to spread? Is there anything new to report? I don't know of anything that's directly applicable to, to patients with metastatic breast cancer at the moment. Um, trying to understand the metastatic potential of cells and whether there are certain characteristics of a cell um, apart from how extensive the, the initial cancer is um, that predisposed to, to spread or metastasis is, is somewhat unclear. For that matter, we don't truly understand why some cancers metastasize to some organs and others don't. And even within a subtype of breast cancer, there's a lot of variability in terms of how that cancer spreads. We don't know if that's just random, which it's hard for me to imagine that it's random, or whether um, it's either built into the genetics of the cancer, or maybe it's even something about the person. The one thing we haven't touched on is the immune system, which for years, I think many, many doctors said, the immune system is just not where the money is. But increasingly, with this new generation of immune-based therapies, and, and there are now several different drugs that are available, there's a lot of interest in manipulating the immune system to essentially take advantage of the body's own defenses to help fight the cancer. Um, and there are these drugs that essentially um, allow a woman's own body to use her immune system to fight the cancer better by preventing substances that are made in and around the cancer from turning off her immune system. Now, some of these drugs have worked very well in diseases other than breast cancer. They're just now being tested in breast cancer. I think there's a reasonable likelihood, pretty strong likelihood, that in a, at least some select group of women that these will be good breast cancer drugs as well. Is that how it works? Are you talking about melanoma? The talking about melanoma and the drugs I'm talking about are, are largely PD-1 and PD-L1. And again, these are drugs that um, turn off um, a protein that is there to get the immune system um, or to, to, to create havoc on the immune system so that the immune system isn't able to recognize and destroy the tumor. One patient writes in, what are your thoughts on going back to anti-hormonal therapy that has already been used and the patient progressed on? Yeah. 
So um, there are anecdotal reports that you can go back to drugs like tamoxifen that stopped working many years ago, and then when you go back to them, occasionally they work. I have seen this on rare occasion. For the most part, I don't think that it's a terribly successful approach, but I do acknowledge that once in a while it may work. Some of the times in which we think it may work may actually be that we're just treating patients who have such slow-growing cancer that we put them back on these drugs, the cancer remains stable. We assume that it's because of the drug, and it's really because, as I sometimes say to patients, that um, the woman is in harmony with the cancer because it's just not doing very much. And, of course, you know, this is, this is so variable from person to person. And, you know, I, I, I just want to point out that I've probably said, I don't know, we don't know, to about 20 different things during the, the, the course of this uh, talk so far. And we know more about breast cancer than we do about almost any other malignancy. And I think that this points to the fact that there's tremendous research that needs to be done. And it's why we really need all of us to put pressure on the federal government and on other funders to support both basic and clinical breast cancer research so we don't have to keep saying we don't know. That's a very good point. Um, one person wrote in, I think this is a pretty common question, but you probably get a lot. What are the common side effects of metastatic breast cancer treatment? And what are there any new ways or what are the ways to cope with these side effects? And is there anything new on them? Yeah, well, the side effects totally depend on the treatment. And even in terms of chemotherapy, not all chemotherapy is created equally. For those women who received chemotherapy when they had stage one or stage two or stage three breast cancer and were pretty sick for three to six months, I think the thing to keep in mind is that the chemotherapy for metastatic breast cancer tends, if anything, to be better tolerated. It's a little kinder and gentler. We're typically not using combinations of drugs. And we have several drugs that have fairly limited side effects. Some drugs cause hair loss. Other drugs don't. Some drugs cause low blood counts. Others don't. And there's a lot of flexibility in terms of how you use these drugs in women with metastatic breast cancer. And I feel that it's really up to the doctor and the patient to come together and talk about um, what might be most effective and what, might, what drug might um, produce the side effects that would be most tolerable for a given woman. And of course, the fact is that some women have a lot more side effects than others. Uh, one woman asked specifically, do you have any recommendations on how to deal with fatigue related to treatment? I wish I did. Um, and um, there's little that's magical in the area of fatigue. There are some medications that have been tried. I'm not convinced that they work so very well. And many patients are hesitant to start on additional medications. I think it's a combination of sometimes trying to adjust the treatment that someone's on, making sure that they're not on too many other medications that could be causing fatigue, making sure there isn't some other cause like a low thyroid, which every once in a while will, will, will be the problem. Um, and then I, I think that you know, for most people who have mild to moderate fatigue, it's a combination of 
giving yourself a little kick in the rear and you know getting up off the sofa or out of bed and trying to take a walk and push yourself and getting rest. Um, nothing makes people feel more tired than sitting around all the time. But in truth, sometimes people really just can't do more than that. So you got to know when to push. You got to know when to back off. Um, if you push yourself um, to try to get yourself going, you have to realize that um, you have to listen to your body. And you know when it gets to be too much, you really have to back off. Does depression play a role in things? Well, depression can. And um, I should have mentioned that already, and I appreciate that, 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 that question. Because, um, of course, we don't have a mind and a body that live in two separate s states. They're all together living in the same human being. And where our head is at affects how we perceive things and the symptoms we have. The symptoms we have affect our emotions and our psyche such that a woman who is depressed tends to have more side effects, um, is more distressed from a lot of physical symptoms. But at the same time, people who have a lot of physical symptoms understandably can get depressed. So it can be a vicious cycle, and sometimes there is a need to interrupt it. And for someone who really feels depressed or whose doctors and, and, and nurses and other healthcare providers think that she's depressed, Sometimes there's, there's a role for an, an antidepressant. Do you address this when you see patients? I don't address it with every single patient. Um, I, I hope I talk to my patients um, enough so that I pick up on um, subtleties that arise. I think oftentimes you can tell when someone's mood seems to be lower than it, than it, it should be. Um, you know, it's challenging because I think, uh, I think a number of people, when you raise the possibility of that they could be depressed, um, sometimes feel that, that that's suggesting that they're somehow weak, and it isn't, because it's almost impossible to imagine living with metastatic breast cancer for many years and at some point not feeling depressed, because it's tough. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should not treat it or not address it. You know, it's to some degree part and parcel of the, of the illness, but we have to pay attention to that. What about, what, how do you feel about integrative therapies like acupuncture? Um, acupuncture has been shown um, to play a role in, in, in the treatment of patients with cancer in certain specific areas. Um, I think there's, there's probably the best evidence in terms of you know, what you will call integrative therapies for acupuncture, um, uh, although there's not evidence that it helps everything by any means. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I don't think you can underestimate the role of psychological support. Um, so social work and psychiatry and psychologist interventions, um, sometimes interventions that involve uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or relaxation techniques. Um, and, you know, I think that that's very, very important. Uh, one viewer asks, are there certain diet or nutrition practices that could reduce the risk of developing 
metastatic breast cancer? Not that we know of, <laughs> other than trying to maintain a fairly normal body weight and not gain a lot of weight. Um, but, and probably to avoid excessive alcohol intake, which I usually think is on average more than one to two drinks a day. But, Does, you know, one can go crazy about those things. But we have not shown that eating um, no red meat decreases a woman's chance of having recurrent breast cancer. We haven't shown that um, not eating sugar um, decreases a woman's chance of developing metastatic breast cancer. And the same is true once a woman develops metastatic breast cancer. Oftentimes people go on quite restrictive diets, um, and they do so because it's something they can control and it may make them feel better to do that, but we don't have evidence that that makes a difference. Um, and so I often tell people that, you know, to the extent they feel comfortable doing this, they should eat what they want to eat. Right. Um, you know, they should pursue a reasonably healthy diet, but if they want something that they may think of as being less optimal for their health, once in a while those things are fine. Can have some chocolates, or you better believe it. <laughs> um, everybody, you see this a lot in the news: vitamins, vitamin C. What are your thoughts? Um, I'm, I know of no evidence that taking vitamins changes the course of metastatic breast cancer. Taking a multivitamin is fine. Um, the uh, most of the evidence suggests that it's what you eat that's most important, and that vitamins um, and other nutrients should optimally be taken in in the context of one's normal diet. If someone is at a place where they're not able to eat normally, then supplements become more important. Uh, this from a viewer, other than PARP inhibitors, are there any new treatments that target BRCA mutated metastatic breast cancer specifically, not just through the lens of triple negative breast cancer? Sure. Um, well, the PARP inhibitors um, do in fact target BRCA1 and BRCA2 associated breast cancer. They're drugs that I wish had been um, developed further five years ago. They're now being developed very actively at the moment. I think that there's a pretty good chance that they, that one or more of the PARP inhibitors will ultimately be FDA approved. There are other treatments um, that also take advantage of the fact that um, that BRCA-associated uh, cancers have a problem repairing the DNA defects that arise in the tumor. And so there are other treatments that are geared towards, um, towards creating additional DNA uh, repair problems in the cancer cell with the idea that if enough of these problems accum accumulate, the cell will just die. Um, but those treatments are still pretty early on in development. Another viewer asked, can you address research around CDK inhibitors? Yeah, well, CDK inhibitors, CDK stands for cyclin-dependent kinase. Um, cancer cells divide by going through what's called the cell cycle, and, and as a cancer cell goes through the cell cycle, it ultimately splits and divides, and when it divides, it's able to, uh, of course, create two cells, and th this is how cancers ultimately grow. Uh, the CDK inhibitors interrupt that process. The preliminary evidence suggests that they're active drugs, that they are able to help hormonal therapy control the cancer better. 
One of the uh, CDK inhibitors in development may even work by itself without hormonal therapy. And there are phase three trials that have been conducted and are waiting to be analyzed. They're not ready to be analyzed because patients need to be followed a little longer. And there are CDK inhibitors that are still in clinical trials. And I think all of us are pretty jazzed up about this area and think that there's a, a fairly good chance that one or more of these drugs will ultimately get approved and will add to, our, to the treatments we have. The good news about the CDK inhibitors is that for the most part, they don't create a lot of side effects that result in, in bad symptoms. Finally, what advice would you give to someone who is newly diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer? Yeah, so I mean, I give this, di this advice with, with some frequency. Um, and in no particular order, um, here are some of the things I, I say. One, I do acknowledge that this is an illness that ultimately will, will take most women's lives unless we have dramatic new developments. That said, there are women who live with metastatic breast cancer for many, many years, and people always say, well, Eric, what do you mean by many, many? And by many, many, I mean more than five, more than 10, sometimes longer than that. And I have many of those patients in my own clinical practice. Does that mean that's a guarantee for everyone? No. Um, increasingly, we are trying to manage metastatic breast cancer as what people often think of as a chronic illness. The hard part is it's a chronic illness that ultimately ends oftentimes as a life-threatening illness. But you can't spend all of your time focusing on what could happen in the future. And once you pick yourself up from having received a new diagnosis, you have to just go on with your life. And you can't deny the sadness. Um, and you have to be able to talk about it at times. But you also can't live with that in front of your face um, every single moment. I think it's really important when you have metastatic breast cancer because you're going to be having a pretty in-depth relationship with the, the doctors and nurses and, and uh, potentially pharmacists and social workers who take care of you. You've got to find a team that you're comfortable with because when you're a totally healthy person, it almost doesn't matter what doctor you see because if you think of quality of life as a big pie, the, 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 there's a little tiny sliver that is about the person who takes care of you. When you're a woman with metastatic breast cancer, that sliver gets to be a big slice. And you gotta be comfortable with those people. I think that you have to decide what kind of person you are in terms of wanting information. Do you wanna know absolutely everything? Do you want to be out there on the internet doing your own research? Do you want to rely on your healthcare team? And different people have different styles and you have to make some decision about, about who you are. And I do think that women should take advantage of clinical trials. Now for some women who live in rural environments far from centers that have clinical trials, that just may not be feasible. And I don't necessarily think that someone living in rural uh, Montana should pick themselves up and go to a major cancer center and stay in a hotel for the next nine months. 
But I, I do think that people should take advantage of everything that's available to them. Um, and uh, finally, um, I think that they should remain optimistic because the longer someone lives, the greater the chance that there's going to be some new treatment. And that new treatment could be a game changer. This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Eric Weiner of the Breast Oncology Program in the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.